Good morning, everybody. My name is Ben, and it's good to be with you. I'm one of the pastors here. What a cool thing to be walking through the story in the book of Acts as we left the gospel of Mark. That's where we were for a long time. We left Mark off, and now the story continues. Luke is telling it now in the, in the we might say, the gospel of Acts. He's telling the story of how this good news continues to go forth. So that's where we are today, but I want to jump back hundreds and hundreds of years uh, to a different, a different text in our Bibles. I want to put a verse up. Colleen, could you put that slide up? The God of heaven will prosper us, said the great Nehemiah, great leader. We, his servants, will start the rebuilding. If you know Nehemiah's story, um, you know that he's in the midst of a very significant project. This is, this is back after Israel was taken from their land in exile. Now they're going back, and Ezra has led a big return of people. Now Nehemiah leads a big return of people, and Nehemiah's job is to build the wall, and he's got all kinds of opposition coming at him. People don't like that they're restoring the city of Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah is trying to lead people to do an impossible task. And the opposers to this job, people who had been living in the land, they don't want to see it happen. They start, they start aggressively pursuing them and saying and mocking them, you'll never get this done. This is totally impossible. They threaten their life at times. We're going to kill you if you keep trying to do this, okay? So Nehemiah's got quite a job. Going to try to keep people stoked about it. So he says something that I think is common to many of us. He appeals to God's sovereignty, doesn't he? He says, yeah, this is a major project, but the God of heaven is going to prosper us. Now, if you're looking at a project and you say, there's no way we can do this, it feels good to have a leader come and say, Yes, we can't do this, but God can. Is that familiar language to us at all? I think that's very familiar in the church. Yeah, I can't do this, but God can. God is sovereign. He's powerful. Man, I, we, just, we need God to intervene or something like that. But look at that sentence. Does, it, does anything strike you? What he says in the sentence is not often where we go. I think we're stoked on the first clause. Only God can do this. We can't do it without God. He's the only one with that kind of power. We might say, only God can forgive. Only God can heal. Only God can give life. That's his job. That's what he does. We kind of get into that framework but you saw the second line too. Nehemiah didn't respond. Only God can make this happen. We simply don't have the power to fix this destroyed wall. Only God can prosper us, so let's bow in prayer and trust that he'll do it. He says, God can prosper us. We should start working. That's interesting, isn't it? He appeals to the great. This isn't the only place in the book of Nehemiah that he says the same thing. You get to chapter 6 and they'll say they end up building the whole wall in like 50 some days, less than two months. And everybody's looking at him and saying, this is ridiculous. There's no way that could have been done. And it's this witness to the power of God. And Nehemiah starts talking about all the people who did it, the people who did it. Is he denying God's sovereignty? Clearly not. 
Is he denying God's activity? Clearly not. But Nehemiah has this thing inside of his head, this way of understanding his life with God as one of God's followers. And he seems to be therefore interested in doing the same things that God does. He believed that God was intending to build this wall with divine power, and that moved him to start building the wall. As a follower of God, he believed that he was built, he was created to be doing what God was doing. That's interesting. Okay, let's go back to Acts. Jump a couple hundred years forward. And before we get to the story in Acts, we see Jesus. And Jesus is doing something. And Jesus is God. So when we look at Jesus, we see a very good picture of what God is interested in doing. What is God doing in Jesus? He's bringing life to the world, is he not? He's bringing a tremendous amount of life to the world in a way the world has never seen. The Father has sent him out, and Jesus operates within the Father's ways of life. And he becomes a bringer of life, new life, living water. He becomes sustenance to where he says weird things like, you roll with me and you won't be hungry or thirsty anymore. I came to bring new creation. You're going to be born again, new life. Jesus seems to be all about it. And then Jesus leaves. <laughs> Bye-bye. See you sometime in the future. You know? now, now everybody says, we enjoyed the outpouring of life that you brought through your love and your ministry. We're not very happy to say uh, farewell. And Jesus says, well, I'm going to pour out my spirit on you, and you will receive power. We saw that in the first couple chapters of Acts, okay? When he says you, we're thinking ancient world and first church and whatever, but I do believe there's a reason to look at that and say, you Christians who follow me and love Jesus, the Spirit is poured out on you, and that means you and I in this room are kind of in the purview there. I might say, well, I'm stoked that Jesus was on, on that page of giving life, but I simply don't have the power to give life to another human being. I don't have that power. Only God does this. Only God is able. Only God can grant life. I think all of us would readily admit we cannot give life. It's, I can't do it. And then I realize I'm a human being which means I was born, which means another human being gave me life. And that might sound like I'm being a little bit snarky, but I'm not. Human beings seem to have a say in procreation. Human beings seem to create new life. Do they do it all by themselves? No. And yet it opens our mind a little bit to think about participating with God. It opens our mind a little bit to see how hard of a line is there drawn between God's action and mankind's action, humankind's action. Maybe sometimes we split them apart too much. 
You might say, okay, that's the, I see what you're saying, Ben, but still, that's not the ultimate source of life, and that's really what we're talking about in Jesus. And with that, I would not disagree, but I think there's something beautiful to see if we think about it a little bit more. Like Nehemiah, who knew that the project was impossible without God's power, Peter seems to know the same thing. He'll say, only in Jesus' name do I do this. And like Nehemiah, knowing what God is doing in the world, Peter knew what he was created to do. He had learned this by listening to Jesus. Throughout our lives, I think each of us periodically wonders, what's the point? What am I doing here? Why, why am I going through all of what I go through? Is it just to maintain and survive and get to the grave as comfortably as possible? I want to suggest this morning that at the core of your being, because you are created by God, you were created to be a life giver. And I think that post-Pentecost, with the pouring out of the Spirit, we sometimes underestimate just how much power we have as human beings to either give life or to take it away from people. I think sometimes we like to self-deprecate, and in doing so, we can advocate our responsibility. We can say, well, no, I didn't bring that much death to somebody. How could I? I'm just a little old person. I couldn't bring life to somebody. I'm just a little old person. And I think that the opening chapters of Acts blow up our mind to say, you're not just little old persons who can't do anything. You're called sons and daughters of God that he brought into the fold to bless all of the entire planet with. <laughs> and he's going to help you do that. And our role is to kind of look at these leaders in the church and say, they react to that high calling in a different way that I might instinctively. They seem to be very interested in doing what God is doing. So let's go back to Acts 3 and then roll through those 10 verses again. We'll break them down a little bit slower. Try to think about what's going on. We have a beggar in the gate, the gate outside the temple. There's some stuff going on here that's really interesting. So verse 1, now Peter and John are going up to the temple at the time for prayer, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And a lame man from birth was being carried up, who was placed at the temple gate called the Beautiful Gate. That's what Luke calls him. He's placed there every day so that he could beg for money from those who were going into the temple courts. All right, we'll pause there. Is this man alive? Yes, I think he is a living human being. But he's physically dysfunctional. His ankles and bones have been formed incorrectly from birth. So he's alive, and yet he's corrupted, and he's distorted. And so he's lessened, physically speaking, but also relationally speaking. He stands in a unique relationship to the community that he lives in, and it's probably not a real happy-go-lucky one. And he stands in a place of diminished ability spiritually in his day and in their way. He's not allowed to even come into church. You can't go into the temple when you're deformed like that. So he can't participate in worship. He's got to sit outside the gate. His heart is beating, but I think it's probably aching and broken inside too. His feet and ankles might exist, but they're twisted and they're broken and aching. So I think we can kind of start to say life is a lot more than just existence, isn't it? 
If you want to really think about this deeply with the Bible, read through John's writing. John is so interested in just blowing up our spot in terms of what life really is because we are all brought up to believe that life is your heart beating. That's why we call machines life support. Keep the heart beating, keep the brain pumping, and then you're alive. Well, I think we can all sort of sense there's, there's life and then there's just rote existence. So here's this beggar, and he's sitting under the beautiful gate. We're not totally sure which gate it is. I read on this a bunch. People think it's this gate or that gate. They kind of narrow it down to three gates. I think, it's, I think it's one that Josephus talks about. Josephus was a first century historian. There's a gate going into the temple. He says it's 75 feet tall. I can't, I don't know how that's possible. These are 33 foot high ceilings. So it'd be double that high, covered in Corinthian bronze. That's a big structure. I don't even know if that's true, but Josephus does say that it's that big. And this is what he says. He says it's covered in Corinthian bronze, and in that day, quote, this greatly excelled those that were only covered with silver or gold. So back then, they, I guess we're shooting for the Corinthian bronze medal. You know, It was really cool, and it was really beautiful. And here's this man. Right there under the massive entry doors sits a broken beggar who was born with genetic malfunctions in his legs, unable to walk. He can't go into the temple to worship. Yes, he's alive. Yes, he exists. And yet there's something to it. You think, yeah, he's very deeply diminished. Aren't we all feeling a similar desperation in our own life? You might not be in his state. Don't you and I both share the sense that life is broken? That the deep pain in my soul, the tears that come often in private, they, they come from a place that says something is messed up. I am not fully alive. I haven't yet received the fully abundant life that only God can give. I think we all feel that to a very real degree. In the beggar's scenario here, we see it punctuated especially. Let's go to verse 3 now. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple courts, he asked them for money. What is the source of life in our world? Money. <laughs> it's just, I mean, they've been teaching that apparently for thousands of years. I need cash. Cash fixes everything. You've got a problem with something, give it more money. Go fund it. It's going to happen. So what does the beggar he asks for? He asks for money. Do you think he actually needs money? Yeah, I think he probably needs money. He probably needs money more than most. Unfortunately, Peter and John are flat broke. Now, what do we do when we're broke and we see somebody up the street who we know is about to ask for money? You know. I bust out my cell phone and pretend I'm texting somebody. You know, I, I, I don't want to make eye contact with them. You move past quickly. Not Peter and John, though. Look at verse 4. Peter looked directly at him, as did John, and he said, look at us. This is serious eye contact. There he pauses for a moment. Feel that pause. The hustle and the bustle. If it's prayer time at 3 o'clock, everybody's moving and shaking, getting into the temple. And here Peter and John freeze. They pause. You can feel it. Can you see it like in a movie? 
Everybody moving around, but here's three people paused. The beggar's looking straight into Peter's eyes. Peter's looking straight into his eyes, and so is John. Something deeply human is going on right in this moment. This beggar is being humanized, respected, cared about. Peter doesn't treat him like an unsolvable problem, which is how we sometimes feel when we encounter people with great need. I can't help you. I'm sorry. You're too, it's too big of a problem. He doesn't treat him that way. That's when we say, gosh, only God can help you. Only God can do that. There's no way I could do that. But do we also say, and because I am with God, I'm part of that provision, so I will act now. <laughs> I don't know that we always do. I think sometimes we say only God can do that. That's the end of the sentence. And now I'm going to go back to something else. Here Peter says, I am giving you my attention, and I desire your attention. Look at me. Why? Why would Peter say this? I think if you asked him, he would say something like, I'll paraphrase loosely here. I think he would say, because God is my favorite artist of all time. And when I run into a human being, I am seeing his artistry on display in the most amazing way I can in all of planet Earth. I am truly interested in seeing and knowing God's creative genius. And when I see fellow human beings, that's where I see God's creative genius most vividly. He looks at him. The man looks back at him. He respects him. He shows him love. Simone Weil, a French philosopher from the 1900s, she once said, attention, it's the rarest and purest form of generosity. So Peter is generously giving this man his attention, and he's asking the same from the man. Now we get to verse 5. So the lame man paid attention to them, expecting to receive something from them. He's like, good, <laughs> I've got his attention. Hopefully he's got a wallet. But Peter doesn't have any money to give. But Peter does not see his lack of having what the man wants as a deal breaker. Sometimes that's where we're at. Hey, I want this from you, Ben. And I say, oh, well, I don't have it. Sayonara, I'm out. You know, didn't work out. Peter hears the request for silver and gold, says, I don't have that to give you. And yet because he has been captured and transformed, or is being transformed by the gospel, he's becoming one who wants to give. I can't give you what you asked for, but I've got something to give you. Verse 6, Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And Peter took hold of him by the right hand and raised him up. And at once, the man's feet and ankles were made strong. I cannot imagine that scene. Imagine what, I would love to know what it feels like to go 30, 40 years with your ankles being totally messed up. What does it feel like as your bones fix, ligaments straighten out, everything comes into alignment, and you can jump in the air for the first time ever? 
It's amazing. But Peter doesn't ask, it's interesting, Peter doesn't ask the man if he wants to be healed. Sometimes Jesus does that. Jesus, this, sounds, this scene sounds a little bit like Jesus' healing scene too, doesn't it? It's very parallel. Jesus will ask the person who needs healing, do you even want to be healed? Peter just knows he does. He just assumes it. He doesn't ask. He just says, hey, I've got something that you might be interested in. He knew that broken, deformed ankles are not as good as healthy ones. One is more alive. Peter also knew that being prevented by law from entering into the temple to worship was not good for a person's soul. It didn't foster true life in God. And Peter was trained by Jesus. Jesus, a man who was interested in giving life freely to people, he was trained by him. So he sees a man who's broken in every way, relationally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. The man thinks gold and silver will solve the problem, and Peter says, I can't give you that, but let me help. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus never solved problems in the world, did he? Poverty, hunger, disease, genetic malformations. I mean, Jesus was just on the ground on planet Earth not that long ago. And here we have a guy who's still deformed. Jesus didn't fix him. In that sense, according to our rubric today, we might say Jesus didn't solve anything. And yet, that may cause disappointment for us, and I think that's okay. I wish that Jesus had solved everything. After I get past my disappointment, I move to inquiry. I say, well, what does that teach me then about God? Does it teach me that God cannot heal everybody? I don't think you can conclude that if you read the Bible. God seems to be able to heal everybody. But he didn't come in and solve that problem. What Jesus patterns for us is a way of faithfulness. He seems to engage with the people on his walk of life, in his sphere, and he seems to say, all of the people in my sphere are going to be people that I care about and pay attention to, but he doesn't seem to have that sort of, I'm fixing everything, and that's the burden that the world puts on me. How are you going to solve racism, Ben Tartine? How are you going to solve the poverty problem or the homeless issue in Portland? I say, gosh, I can't solve it. But I think I can look to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus wasn't really solving it either, but he was really faithful. He did what he could do in his world. God sent him to give life to people, and he did, freely, without fear, even at tremendous social cost to him and financial cost to him. I mean, he's homeless. He says, man, even the animals in this world have a place to live, and I don't. Jesus was kind of broke, and yet everywhere he went, he gives life to people. Peter obviously picked up on this from his rabbi, his teacher. And so, Peter gives this man a dose of real life, acknowledging that his power to do so was outsourced. It's a participation picture. Jesus just said, get up and walk. He didn't appeal to any other name because he was the name, he was God. Peter appeals to Jesus' name, or he invokes it here, and he says, by the name of Christ. So Peter says, I'm participating with God right now. I'm not at the top of my class at Hogwarts, okay? This isn't wizardry and magicianship, and I'm not coming with some sort of futuristic alien tech 
that's going to help fix you. He's not appealing to his own genius or his own power. He appeals to Jesus' power, and then the beggar gets a lot more than he asked for, doesn't he? He gets a lot more than silver and gold. What he experienced was the result of deep human contact and attention, intently looking at one another, as well as the deep healing work of God and God alone with Peter. Verse 8, the man jumps up. He stood up and he began walking around and he entered the temple courts with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God and they recognized him as the man who used to sit and ask for donations at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with astonishment. I mean, they're shocked and amazement at what had happened to him. Real, full, abundant life is astonishing, isn't it? They're shocked, not because the man is the same. That wasn't shocking to them. What's shocking to them is a man who is deeply broken that is now jumping around and praising God. And it totally blows them away. Something about an abundant, full, healthy life is amazing to us. Transformation from one place to another is amazing to us. Some of you guys know my story. You know that God has changed me from a man who was homeless living under a bridge to a man who stands here before you now preaching God's word. It's a story of transformation. God pulls us out of places and turns us around. It's amazing. And to, and to that, a healthy human being that has been made healthy by another person is even more amazing, isn't it? It's one thing to think of God's sort of spiritual, mystical power that does it. But if you see somebody who brings healing to another, you're seeing something infinitely beautiful, some kind of miraculous thing going on. I wonder if there are many deeds in the world that are more mighty than bringing health and restoration and life to people who have been diminished and broken by this world. Is there anything more beautiful than that? A mighty deed is what we're looking at, right? One of Peter's first big recorded mighty deed. And he's bringing health and restoration. All the people in the crowd see him walking and praising. All the people in the crowd know where he used to be and now he's healed. All the people were filled with amazement and astonishment. Jesus is a human being who gives life to other people. Peter is a human being who gives life to other people. Are you and I human beings who give life to other people? Is our community a life-giving community, helping to restore life around us in our individual spheres of existence where we work and play and live? Are we bringing life as a whole to our neighborhood and to our city? Being known as a Christian who gives life to others, perhaps, is one of the most powerful witnesses to the truth of Jesus. It's a life-giving person. They build people up. They strengthen them. They help to restore what the world has diminished. That is powerful, men and women. And I think we come back to that question. 
Do I even have the power to give life to other people? Because I guarantee every one of you is still saying, yeah, but, (laughs) right? Yeah, but he has miraculous healing powers as an apostle. I don't have that. Only God gives life. But again, that takes us back to that childbearing example. That picture for me, that idea that, uh, that human beings participate in the creation of human life with God, says there's something about this participation we have to think about, meditate on, wonder about. Even God himself did not come into this world as a human being without participating with a human. Mary had to exercise her will to line up with God's. She could have had an abortion. There's no way I'm having a, a baby out of wedlock in this world Why would you say that to me, God? Are you crazy? No, I'm not doing it. Mary didn't rebel. She was faithful. God participated with her. She chose to be in alignment with what he was going to do. Mary was therefore a life giver. My mom was a life giver. So was yours. My dad was a life giver. So was yours. That's a great example of how we participate, but I think it's only one example. What about family members who serve Cheerios and scrambled eggs in the morning to children or other friends or other housemates? Giving food and shelter and clothing and water is an act of life-giving. It brings health and goodness to God's miracles, to his creation. On one hand, you didn't create the grains, you didn't create the eggs, you didn't create the milk, so only God can do that kind of creative stuff, and yet you use what he's given you to either bring life or to bring something else about. With those things that he only gives, we can choose to create life or we can choose not to. You parents who are scrambling and stressing to nourish your children every single morning before you get off to school, And to work, it can feel like you're just slogging through the regular chores of this brutal world. I'm just getting through, maintaining. Let the idea of participating with God's life-giving nature inform your day-to-day grind. I'm not just slogging through. That's what Satan wants me to think. The evil one would tempt us to believe, oh, yeah, I just got to get through this crap festival. And get all bummed out. God turns that right around and he says, no, you're participating in the miraculous act of of creating and sustaining life. That's what I'm about. Think about that when you're making breakfast. This is what I'm doing for my children or my roommates or whatever. There's an unsettling truth to see here. It does us no good to think that God is the only life giver, all right? Now, if we're talking about false gods or a variety of gods, then it is good to think that God is the only one who gives life, (laughs) all right? False gods don't. And if we're thinking in the ultimate sense, ultimately where does life come from, then it is good to think that God is the only one who gives life. But if you're thinking about it in terms of your family or your relationships, your neighborhood, your church, I think it harms us deeply to say only God can bring life. I think here in community and in connection with other people, we have to come to a place where we say, 
God gives life through people, and I'm one of those people. Am I lining up with God, or am I kind of off doing my own thing? Imagine Peter seeing the broken beggar and saying, sorry, bro, only God can help you, and walked away. All right. That probably wouldn't have been a story that made it into the Bible. It would have been boring. That's just average, right? I can't help you. See you later. Imagine going to Starbucks and ordering an Americano. All right, you pull up. I want an Americano. The cashier comes up in the green apron. I would like an Americano, please, you say to him. And he says, only Starbucks can do that. <laughs> and you're just like, uh-huh, Yeah. That's cool, so can I get that Americano? He says, no, I just told you, only Starbucks can give you an Americano. It'd be weird. I would not go back to that Starbucks. I'd be like, they hire mania. I don't know what to do with that. wonder how many times people come into the church desperate for life, and they have something like that happen. Only God can give you forgiveness. I'm not going to forgive you because I can see that you're sinful but at least God can. Can you and I, think of that, that, that barista, if you could even call him a barista. I don't know if you could. He's unable to own the fact that he belongs to the corporation, Starbucks. He gloriously and majestically touts the great power of the coffee company. They're the only ones who can get the beans, the only ones who can roast them, the only ones who can do all that. I don't have trucks. I don't have a coffee man. You see? And yet he's sitting there in the most confusing place to himself and anybody else that works with them. Can you and I actually own the fact that we belong to Jesus and are thereby lined up with his mission, actually wanting to do the kind of work that he did? And does. We are brothers and sisters of Jesus that he said, you're now in my kingdom. You're in my, you're my citizens and I'm the king. You're with me and this is what my kingdom is about. You say, okay. Okay. I hear you on this, Ben, to some degree, but this passage is about an apostle who performs miracles. I cannot do that. What the heck do I do with this? <laughs> I don't think there's a simple answer to that question. I think so far we've been able to see the principle of life-giving. I can't go to people and, and, and heal them by touching them. I haven't been able to do that ever. Some will tell me that's because I don't have enough faith. It's funny, Peter, who we're talking about here, will write in his second letter to his people, which are not all miraculous healers, He'll write to them and he'll say, you guys have a faith that's equal to ours, meaning the apostles. So if some tell me that I can't do miraculous healing because I don't have enough faith, I think they need to have a conversation with Peter himself, who says, my faith is equal to the apostles. I don't think it's because I don't believe enough. I think God hasn't given that to me. So what, about, what do I do? Well... I've already kind of alluded to this, but I want to flesh it out as, as we close. This will be the last thought today. But I want to say, we've already seen this in the sense of the man couldn't go into the temple, okay? And I think Luke is setting up a picture here that if you were there in the scene, and probably if you were Hebrew and knew the first century culture, you'd pick it up a little bit more clearly. We have seen 
that they are outside right at the gate of the temple, and that's where this is happening. And we've heard that people are going to the temple and praising God and worshiping each day. We read that in chapters 1 and 2. But even though they were going up there, much of the most important thing they were doing was sharing meals, holding their lives together in common. They had deep fellowship, teaching, learning, praying together. This was all happening in their homes outside of the religious holy space. A very deep part of your Christian life happens not necessarily here in this room, but in your normal day today. There is a picture that we're seeing in the opening of Acts and in the conclusion of the gospel of what was once the only sacred space is now getting dispersed out. It, the door has sort of opened, and now what, what used to just be located in one place is now being given to many. So we see that in Peter receiving this gift that he has. An overwhelming majority of your worship and your devotion and your learning about God, it happens in the locker room or the warehouse or while you're driving or while you're grocery shopping. Sometimes we think that those are not places of information about God. They're not places where I practice his life. Did you notice how even though Jesus' name was invoked near the temple, it was still outside the gate that the power was displayed? We've all been taught up until this moment in Acts that the power of God is only in the temple. Luke is winking and nodding at you to say, pay attention, the power's outside the gate now. And it reminds me of a passage in Zechariah's prophecy of 550 years earlier. Zechariah was talking about the future when God's spirit would be poured out in, that, in this time that we're looking at. And he said, look, here's, I'm going to read it to you. This is Zechariah. Chapter 14, verses 20 and 21. He says, on that day, holy to the Lord, kind of quote unquote, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots and the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. What's he saying? There's lots of cooking going on in the temple. There's only sacred bowls by the altar. He says in that day, the cooking pots will be sacred as well. Not just the worship pieces, but the stuff you're making mac and cheese with too will be a sacred bowl. And then he expands it. In verse 21, he says, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. All will come to sacrifice and take some of the pots and cook in them. What's he saying? He's saying what was once located only in the temple will now be spread out. And the division between what is sacred and what is secular will be eradicated. No longer is there gosh, I can only do that if I'm in the church or if I'm in the temple. So what am I saying this? The temple had, um, to a very strong degree, we are now the temple of God. And the Spirit poured into us empowers us in ways we don't expect. And I want to see what's happening in this story as a picture of that, an expansion this does mean that your crock pot and cupboard at home is sacred to God. Your French press is a religious artifact that you can use to help bond and give attention to and bring life to people. It's cool to say that, but it's kind of scary because it means you have to make a choice. Are you going to own the fact that you're a Christian? 
and believe that this is a life-giving, life-changing reality and see that Jesus is on the move in your life for the sake of others? Will you own the fact that God has created you to be a life-giver? Peter didn't have cash, but he had miraculous healing power. We don't have miraculous healing power, but we do have cash sometimes. Peter used what God gave him to bring life to others. Are we using what we have to bring life to others? We ought not get bent out of shape because we don't have the same specific power that Peter shows here. We ought to be encouraged that he is our brother and we have the power of the Spirit too. Do you say to yourself, I am a Christian, or I believe in Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior, or I follow Christ? If you say any of those things, you're wearing a green apron that says you have chosen to be part of Jesus' life and mission. You are telling the world that you're part of his mission, which is his church. Yet if you're bringing darkness and death into the world, which is at the core of selfishness, then you're confusing as that foolish barista at Starbucks. Certainly to yourself and definitely to everybody else. I've met too many people who think that they are Christians and therefore excited about the fact that they're going to go to heaven and yet they've really never understood themselves as being here for the purpose of giving life to everybody around them. Showing love, giving resources, giving forgiveness, showing grace, unrestrained acceptance, attention. We can't look at Peter and just conclude, whoop, that must have been nice to help folks like that. I wish I could. Instead, we look at Peter, especially at that moment where he's locked eyes with the beggar. And we see in him a human being who cares for the well-being of others and uses what God gave him. It's a picture of simple faithfulness, being faithful with what we have, not being upset that we can't fix everything, being faithful on our path and trusting God's promise that he will ultimately fix everything. We have a lot of miraculous power in our life here in this church, miraculous power. We have it represented in the hearts and minds and the hands and feet in this room. The God of heaven will prosper us. We, his servants, will start the rebuilding. Let's pray. God, we believe that you are powerful. We know that ultimately all life, every breath that's ever been taken, has only been done because of your power and your will. We truly believe that, but you are helping us through your word to see that you intend for us to be with you in the deepest possible way, to truly partake in your divine nature, which are Peter's own words. Help us to become partakers in the divine nature, participants in your work, people who are absolutely sold out on your gospel and intently, lovingly, creatively bringing life into this world that you made. We love you. Amen.